Okay, welcome back to another Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. Today is episode 36, and I am very pleased to welcome back Professor Stu Phillips. Hi, Stu. How are you doing, Lauren? I'm good, mate. I'm good. So, um, obviously, you've been on this podcast before, so I would imagine the um, the listeners have heard you talking with uh, Prof. Kev Tipton. Um and I know you guys are super well known for your research um, on uh, most things protein related, but I also know that you have um, many talents, Stu, some of which I shall not put into the public domain. <laughs> um, but um, you, you, you did uh, uh, give us some lectures uh, whilst you were on your visit last year, your academic uh, visit uh, to Loughborough University. You did some lectures for us on the ISSN Diploma, along with, with Kevin. Um, yeah. And one of those lectures was actually something I wanted to talk about, which um, your, the title of your lecture was the, was Influence of Endogenous Hormonal Changes with Resistance Training on Hypertrophy and Strength. But um, loosely, you know, you've, you've done some work um, at your lab, and I've, I've been reading a lot lately um, about this, um, about these issues that, that I think has also been entitled the hormone hypothesis, which is um, what I wanted to talk to you today. So, yeah. so let's uh, set some background here just so we can make it clear. The reason why I'm interested in this topic is because too often people are talking about, um, you know, the importance of, of training and you know, you, you've got lots of people debating about which is the best best form of training. Is it, you know, uh, reps? Uh, how many sets do you train to failure? Is it mechanical stress? Is it metabolic stress? You know, what do we do? And usually the thing that is um, associated with that um, argument or the, the evidence that people present is they'll say, right, well, you know, by far the best form of training uh, to get bigger and stronger and all things jacked, so to speak, um, is uh, things like squats and deadlifts because of the hormonal responses. So they uh, often quote this, you know, these forms of training significantly release hormones like growth hormone, testosterone, and insulin, uh, insulin-like growth factor. Um, and of course, there are steady studies out there that, that tend to support that. But it turns out that um, some of that stuff might be a bit of a red herring. And um, um, perhaps you could sort of quickly describe what this situation is all about sure yeah i i think that you know when we got into this area i have to be honest is that uh, it grew out of uh several comments from reviewers on our our work saying is that you know you haven't measured the pertinent hormones that are could be affecting this and so i, I mean i have to cop to the fact that i was trained as a biochemist and so what i learned about hormones like growth hormone and cortisol and uh, all of these things is that they're, you know, they're fundamentally stress hormones when it comes right down to it. So, you know, you can get a, an extraordinarily large growth hormone and testosterone response after, for example, running 400 meter repeats or 100 meter repeat sprints or something, or a, a very high and an intense bout of hit exercise. But, you know, those aren't associated with a massive amount of hypertrophy. So, you know, when we looked at this to begin with, we sort of asked ourselves a few questions. We said, well, first of all, uh, we're not 
particular believers of this you know thesis that the post-exercise rise in hormones is dictating or is somehow influencing rises in protein synthesis and then subsequent hypertrophy for two reasons first of all uh, the change in hormones is remarkably transient it's only minutes um, and, and really it's up and down by about 30 minutes post-exercise and uh, it's very small in magnitude when you look at the actual diurnal in other words this sort of hour-to-hour -hour variation in the hormones that's occurring just as part of you know, normal daily living, you know, our testosterone levels, our growth hormone or IGF-1 levels go up and down and fluctuate and spike, uh, you know, at various times in the day. And when we looked at the magnitude of the post-exercise response, it was well within the limits of a normal diurnal variation. So, you know, to us, it didn't really, you know, cry out to be a, a stimulatory uh, signal mm. and, and not to dismiss that it certainly could be permissive you needed to have some level of the hormone there to have it happen but so we, so we embarked on a series of studies to basically really directly test that as best as we could anyway yeah and of course there I mean the, you know you you can certainly delve into the literature and, and find studies that supports that whole idea of course and I know that you did a study in and there's another study from Norway which kind of says different things, but of course if you look into the into the methods and so on, you can be a bit critical of the Norwegian study for you know for good reasons that we can get into in a minute. But at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is is more of a correlation. Is that, is that right? You know, they just happen to test those things, or I mean, what you know, why why has this become such a big I don't know if myth is the right word, but it's certainly, it's huge. I mean, you'll hear, you know, people will consider this an absolute fact that you need to do those methods of training to bring about these hormonal responses, which which I'm guessing may come from the other side of this, which, of course, is people using um, um, supplementary hormones. Um, sure. So could, could you sort of help us understand, you know, sort of, you know, where, where we're getting lost on that? Yeah, so I think your first point about the, the correlative evidence is really the, the main crux of it is that, you know, certain studies and really when you boil it right down to actual training studies, um, there's really not as much data as most people claim that there is out there showing a relationship between testosterone changes or growth hormone changes and actual hypertrophy. So, you know, to us it seemed a little bit weak in that area. So we tried to actually you know, force the question from some different angles. And so absolutely interrogate the hypothesis and say, you know, can we set up study designs that would, you know, really test this and not just sort of buck the, the hormonal correlation, which, you know, we've, we've actually conducted about, I think we're on about four or five training studies now, and we've yet to see a correlation with any uh, quote-unquote anabolic hormone. Um, you know, the, the intrinsic nature of testosterone and, and growth hormone, I mean, something says growth, it ha should promote growth, right? And of yeah. course, you know, absence of, of growth hormone or hypopituitarism, if you want to call it that, or dwarfism is obviously people who are short in stature, but it, it, its effects on muscle are a little bit ambiguous. But, you know, coming back to the supplementation in other words uh, steroid use or, or basically injection of uh, non endogenous forms of the hormone 
uh, are remarkably different from transient 30 minute spikes in hormones that last, you know, very short periods of time are within the diurnal range, which is what you see after exercise. So if you're taking an exogenous source of the hormone, it's elevated for the entire time you're taking it all the time. And that's not the same. In fact, it's categorically and absolutely diabolically different. Uh, I don't use any more antonyms there, I would have. But the, the, main, <laughs> the, main, the main point is it's just absolutely completely different. And so yeah. there's no uh, you know, reason to use one argument to sort of prove the other. They're absolutely different. And synthetic hormones are, are not degraded in the same way. Sometimes they last longer. Sometimes they're shorter, but they go undergo different metabolic reactions. So it's not the same as endogenously produced uh, testosterone or growth hormone or insulin-like growth factor. Right. So there, I mean, there's a couple of different things here I wanted to get into. And I, and I know that, you know, one, again, when people talk about this idea of certain kinds of training, for example, squats and deadlifts, you know, they, they increase your testosterone levels. Um, I can't remember what it is. It's like three, four or five times normal level. Um, you can tell us in a second, um, which obviously is vastly different from the levels increased by synthetic hormones. But, you know, the, 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 as, as the saying goes, um, you know, you do your, you do your squats um, your body starts to release um, testosterone, for example, which sort of bathes all of your, um, you know, all of your muscle cells um, in higher levels of testosterone. And then when you, you know, second that that deadlift, for example, by doing say, um, a, you know, a bench press, you're going to get greater um, responses from your bench press because you did the deadlift and and that's increased the testosterone and that. That, that's kind of what people are saying is the advantage of, of that. But I, I'm guessing that's maybe not the case. Yeah, so, so we tried to exploit that sort of paradigm and, and, and really what we did. And I admit that it's a contrived study, but it, it at least provided us proof of principle where we did big heavy leg workouts and then we had somebody exercise only one of their biceps. And so the heavy leg workout um, facilitates the rise in hormones and then basically you're bathing the exercise bicep in these hormones and then we exercise the 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 subject's other bicep just isolated in which it, you know doesn't drive up hormonal levels obviously and we looked at the level of hypertrophy between the two biceps and both of them grew both of them got stronger but there was no significant difference between the two and you know that's uh it, it's in agreement uh, depending on which results you look at or in, in contrast depending on which results you look at with a study uh, performed um, in, in Truls Rosted's lab in, in Norway. Um, but the, the problem with that study, and, and, and you know, I wrote a letter to the editor about it, is, is to say that only two of the four sites in the bicep uh, grew to a differential extent, which means that two of the other four actually grew to the same extent so you yeah. know <laughs> yeah no, i read i read that myself in in preparing for this chat with you i thought i'd better have a look at that study and i noticed that that i mean and i talked to kev tipton about this uh in a recent podcast where we talked about some of the issues with um study designs and the interpretations that we get from this and of course it's this business of significance and whether or not that really is actually significant in the real world and, and this is a classic example of that of course is uh, the argument that 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 
scenario may result in a significant change over the other is is really not significant. Therefore, we probably shouldn't be worrying about it. That's not to say, of course, that we shouldn't be doing uh, squats and deadlifts before people start throwing rocks at my windows. Yeah, people, they like that. I love my squats and deadlifts. And there are, you know, we've had lots of guests on recently, um, everyone from... Um, uh, uh, Lee Breen, of course, and uh, 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 Lee Hamilton, and, and a whole bunch of others who uh, forgive me for not mentioning their names, but you know, there's many factors in this signalling uh, process, and, and that's possibly you know what's going on here. But let's stay on topic because I'm very good at red herrings here, Stu. So, um, <laughs> uh, do you have? I actually because I know you, I know I know you yourself. Uh, uh, a, a, a pretty British because I've heard your English accent, which is impeccable, and um, I know you're you're actually partially British. But the the term red herring does that? Is it, do you know what I mean by red herring? Of course, yes. Oh, yes. good. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. I get confused. I've lived in so many places. I wonder what I'm talking about. At least it's, my wife gives me that impression. Anyway, <laughs> no, 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 no. Red red herring is uh, yeah. That was part of my growing up. I oh, understand the phrase very well. Brilliant. Um, so anyway, back on track. So th- th- this idea of the hormone hypothesis may be a bit of a red herring. Then that was a perfect segue. Uh, but yep. the you know that's not to say though that there isn't an actual benefit to what these these hormones are doing right um the, the maybe if we i don't know if this is appropriate but there's a maybe if we just quickly discuss each of those hormones briefly um since i know people are super interested i mean what's the what's the role that, that testosterone is is having it because you know obviously it's, they've measured that they do increase in um post-training and, and so on but i mean what so what are they doing in actual fact do you think Right. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I don't mean to say that, you know, it's it's absolutely useless to, to look at these things. I, I think if I were to put a, a, you know, a statement as to what it means is that I, myself personally, I wouldn't use the acute level of change or even a rise or even a one spot measurement of testosterone or growth hormone or IGF-1 to in any way imply greater efficacy of a workout in other words i wouldn't say because this gave me this it's better i think that that's that's absolutely and categorically incorrect to say that right um and i also think from a a a long-term sort of monitoring standpoint and i know some you know professional teams who are obsessed with this i you know and it comes in and out of vogue i don't see a lot of benefit to monitoring the status of these hormones and we can also i'll I'll talk a little bit about cortisol but you know the supposed cortisol bogeyman that as soon as cortisol goes up that your muscle is disintegrating which again is uh is absolute uh you know rubbish Mm -hmm. but the, the the main point is that they're all yes performing some necessary function we know for example that once you're done growing so once you're an adult the growth hormone, one of the roles that it, it greatly facilitates is the breakdown of, of, of stored fat. So, you know, workouts that promote uh, a lot of uh, growth hormone release, very intense uh, workouts, for example, and yes, lots of big muscle workouts, squats, deadlifts, etc., are going to, to, to help promote lipolysis breakdown and, and so may help you get a little bit leaner. And so mm. there's a role for growth hormone. Mm. Uh, testosterone's uh, part of the normal, obviously, 
post-pubertal maturation and you know in some of the younger athletes out there if you can catch a a, a young athlete at around the you know the the time of puberty and just when they're going through a big growth phase and you get them uh, into the weight room and uh, in a good supervised controlled manner you can watch these young men uh, literally experience uh, you know almost an endogenous form of taking steroids but they're making it themselves obviously mm-hmm. uh and and it's a normal part of your, your of your libido your sex drive right so uh when testosterone levels are lower older men report uh, lower sex drive they tend to uh have greater rates of depression uh so they're all doing something and i wouldn't say that you know if you don't have this testosterone rise that that's necessarily a good thing. I think that there needs to be a certain level of testosterone there to have the response happen. And we know that from looking at studies of men, for example, who are being being treated for prostate cancer, who are taking uh, an, or, or on androgen deprivation therapy, which is to lower their testosterone to you know near castrate levels, that their muscle mass goes down. So yes, obviously there's a downside to this, and then hypogonadal or low testosterone older men there's definitely a medical reason to think maybe that testosterone needs to be higher and so we need to use supplemental forms of it so it's not an it's not a completely black or white but i hope my sort of statement as to my interpretation of these acute hormonal rises i don't think that they're uh, in any way a measure of workout efficacy or sure. uh, potency or good or bad i mean you know a single spot testosterone or cortisol sample um to me is like you might as well you know lick your finger and stick it up in the air because i'm not sure that you're going to get much more other than a general sense of direction it's nothing specific yes well i, I do believe some people do do that, <laughs> that yeah, that's, well. that and, and, and they uh, they charge a lot of money for that method of testing uh, yeah yeah um, um, no so I, I think it's probably worth also saying that we actually don't know everything that these hormones do yet do we so it's quite possible that 5 10 15 20 30 years down the road we're going to suddenly discover there's a whole bunch of other things that they do and then we go ah oh, that's why they do yep. what they do you know well, and I would certainly say that, you know, at the local level, so, you know, we, we're learning a lot about where these hormones are produced, and there, and there may well be local endogenous intramuscular production of, of testosterone that might be more important. And, uh, you know, a fellow named uh, Satoshi Fujita in Japan has, uh, has published some work in this and said, you know, look, in resistance training, at least in older men, uh, is able to promote increases in, in, in a muscle's intrinsic ability to produce uh, locally active testosterone, a, a compound called dihydrotestosterone, which is even more potent than testosterone. So a lot of these things, uh, local splice variants of IGF-1, for example, um, are probably more important rather than the systemic forms. The, the main problem, I think, that most people have to realize is that the local production of these hormones is uh is is not related to what you measure in the bloodstream unfortunately yes um and i think i mean this is worth actually discussing because i know some people will be thinking yeah but you know i know someone who takes steroids and um you know they take a bunch of testosterone and it clearly 
has an impact um, that they would like to achieve. So they're still going to be thinking that there's more to this testosterone thing that meets the eye. But I think it's worth mentioning that um, uh, if you if you could sort of describe, um, you know, the, the the you know the differences between the natural and non-natural. So with with t- testosterone, you've just mentioned um, there's a temporary increase, whereas I believe with synthetic, it stays in for much longer, but also the, the amounts. Uh, I inferred earlier three, four, or five times, I think, from training, and then synthetic is much higher than that. What, what are the, do you know off the top of your head what those numbers are, roughly? Just so people can see the, just the massive difference between what we produce naturally and, and, and what is synthetically brought Yeah, I think, I think you've laid it out perfectly. I mean, I, I think that... Um, the biggest sort of changes that we've measured acutely are something like about, you know, four to five times resting, mm. uh, which is not, you know, unheard of by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. And, you know, that's a, that's a little spike. It lasts for about 30 minutes and then it's back down. Um, but, you know, you, your testosterone spikes throughout the day anyway. And, you know, the I think the average um, young male listener out there could probably testify that sometime around 5 or 6 a.m. in the morning is when their natural testosterone spikes for a variety of reasons, not the muscular side effects, but we'll, mm. we'll leave that for another time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then when you take testosterone, so um, for example, testosterone enanthate, which is one of the uh, forms that's been used in the literature and uh, classic uh, paper by Shalander Bassine uh, basically showed that, you know, one of the best studies out there to show that steroids work uh, elevates total testosterone uh, about uh, 20 to 25, sometimes 30 times normal. And it's up there for the entire time you're taking this steroid. And so if you inject yourself, your levels are uh, higher, even at a small dose, for days. And, and so that's not a 30-minute small four to five fold spike that's a 24 7 times probably about seven or eight days elevation uh, in testosterone so it's it, it it's it's really uh it, it you know i'd say apples and oranges but it's just apples and you know much bigger forms of apples if you like it that yeah way. yeah huge apples <laughs> exactly yeah um okay so we, I mean, we all know then that testosterone has a, a generally anabolic effect, and you've made it quite clear that this does not mean that the post-workout increase in testosterone actually affects muscle development because naturally it just doesn't hang around for long enough. Um, but obviously, a, a, a sort of an important takeaway from that that little conversation then is that post-exercise testosterone um, elevations are not actually required for muscle growth. Therefore, let's stop worrying about it. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, in reality, so long as you're within the normal range in terms of testosterone uh, and your response after exercise, then re- in reality, it's not to me something that I would track and say, yeah, this is something I need to keep an eye on because this is going to determine one thing or another. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, the best articles that, that, you know, that we've had on this. And, and it actually, it's a perfect uh, paper for your, you know, your listeners to read mm. because it's actually a sort of a point counterpoint um, was published. It's called a contrasting perspective. And uh, it's in medicine, science, sports and exercise where 
myself and a former student of mine, Dan West, uh, essentially have a, a side-by-side argument with, uh, you know, arg- argument in the literature sense anyway, yeah, yeah, sure. um, with the prevailing view that acute, acute post-exercise rises in, t- in testosterone and anabolic hormones are beneficial. So you can get both sides of the argument. And so, I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, well, I completely dismiss this. And, and, and yeah, there's, there's plenty of things. Um, and, you know, I refer to uh, some very interesting work uh, by guys like uh, Blair Cruther and uh, Cook, mm. looking at cortisol responses and arousal, for example. So, mm. you know, there's psychological aspects to this as well. And that, so I'm not completely dismissing anything. And I don't want to come off as sounding, you know, well, there's only our way, the highway. But, sure. you know, I, I, to me, it's 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 been a lot of work that people have done, and I've yet to find it the so-called smoking gun, which makes me go, yes, this is the reason why we need to look at these things. And so as long as you have it within a normal range, then you're you're good to go. Yeah, uh, actually, yeah, because Crook's uh, over here in London, and um, um, I can't remember which university it is now. Uh, I think it's one of the medical schools even. But, uh, but anyway, oh, okay. yeah, um, so I heard some lectures on that stuff, which... Um, which is what I wanted to talk about because the, I guess the next most popular topic is 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 the cortisol, cortisol situation and you you do hear people talk about uh, you know as soon as your as you said earlier you know as soon as, as soon as your cortisol starts to go up you know your muscles drop off you know it's that it, it sort of uh, has that counter uh, balance effect with um, testosterone and and generally speaking when people talk about in the same way they do a testosterone, it's it's all about anabolic this and growth that and testosterone. Sorry, cortisols. You know, stress, bad, nasty. Uh, don't re- you know? Don't don't do anything to, to let it rise. So maybe you could set us straight on cortisol's role in all this. Yeah, I mean, I I think again, uh, you know, a lot of the quote unquote lessons that people have learned about cortisol come from the the clinical world. And so, you know, clinically we know that if you have low testosterone, you lose muscle mass. Or if you have high testosterone, this is pharmacologically induced, that you you gain muscle mass. Uh, And then in the other situation with cortisol, we know that, you know, if you have high cortisol in a clinical situation, excuse me, um, that must, muscle loss begins to occur. And so people say, oh, look, you know, so cortisol is the anti-testosterone. And that they begin to worry about the, the ratio of anabolic to catabolic hormones as if, the, you know, there are no other hormones out there besides testosterone and cortisol, which is, you know, a grossly oversimplistic view. But, uh, and so the, the translation back to the, the, the non-clinical situation is, again, is, you know, if cortisol is low, that's great. If cortisol is high, that's bad. And what I think we have to remind ourselves is what function cortisol has as a hormone. So it's a it is a proteolytic hormone. It induces uh, breakdown of muscle tissue, but it does so primarily so that you can release amino acids to make glucose. That's one of the predominant roles that glucose plays. And so in stressed situations of you know uh, complete starvation or burns or cancer or sepsis um then it's it's sky high because you're trying to produce glucose like crazy it's just incredible but in normal situations 
the drive to do that, particularly if you're eating, you know, a balanced diet and you're not really into a deep energy deprivation situation, the levels of cortisol are going to change to a very small degree and have a markedly minor impact on anything to do with muscle breakdown. And so I think, again, it's, it, it's acute measurement when it's elevated post-exercise is really not a marker of muscle breakdown or at all. Yeah. So here's a, here's a question for you, and um, this will have rocks thrown at both our windows potentially. So, um, um, <laughs> but, but I wouldn't do that because I know that you're currently experimenting with uh, synthetic steroids because you can't get ethics for your next study, so you're doing it on yourself. And now you're exactly. huge. <laughs> you're huge. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so here, here's a simple sort of, you know, question then um because again it's not just conversations about you know methods of training to uh induce the greatest sort of hormonal responses um but also people talk about nutrition um and there are certain relationships that foods like protein for example can have on on these hormonal responses uh, you know the cortisol response the testosterone etc i mean what sort of role does that have that's part one and then the, the 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 rocks at our windows part is how significant are certain supplements that you know help protect you from from post-exercise cortisol damage and all that stuff so so let's let's just you know the role of um protein and protein supplementation first right yeah well you know so i mean this would be backtracking uh, yeah. to the earlier podcast and sort of, you know, just uh, rehashing what protein can do. Obviously, it provides the building blocks. It creates an anabolic environment. And so from a from a hormonal perspective, uh, you know, with, with respect to the normal endogenous rises in uh, the hormones that we've been talking about, they're much smaller when you consume protein post-exercise. So in a sense, you could argue that, in other words, feeding and consumption of protein tends to blunt a lot of the things that we're talking about, right. uh, which is more, you know, to me anyway, fuel for the argument that all that the hormones really are is a stress response and that, you know, by eating, you, you are uh, turning down or toning down that stress response. Right. But from, a, from the perspective then of, you know, what can you do to protect yourself against all of these things? There's there's been very little so far as I can see in terms of nutritional supplements or even compounds that are uh, supposedly, you know, testosterone enhancers or anti-cortisol or anything like that sure. beyond simple nutrition itself. I mean, you know, once again, I, you know, you come back to people talk about, you know, fenugreek as a testosterone. Then, and then there was you know, tribulus terrestris, and then there was, you know, there's been a lot of them, pro-hormone supplements, DHEA was out there for a long time, uh, androstenedione, and all of these things. And what you notice is that those products have come and gone. And, and really what that says to me is that the, the people who are in the gym and have used these products don't really see a whole lot of difference. Mm. Or otherwise, they'd still be using them. And we still, after, you know, 20 years since it's being brought into the mass market, we still talk about creatine, for example. Mm. We still talk about protein because they tend to work. 
and so, you know, if you needed a better acid test as to some of these things, and if there is the next quote unquote legally, uh, you know, uh, available alternative to steroids, then first of all, if it were, if it were efficacious, it would be banned mm. quite quickly from, you know, any sort of form of regulated sporting competition and the IOC in particular, they're very skittish about anything like that. Mm. And uh, at the second sort of turn, wouldn't it be a popular supplement and, you know, just fly off the shelves if it really did work like steroids? And so, you know, I've, you know, and you've been around this game long enough mm. to realize that those sorts of things just, you know, <laughs> you know, they just don't happen. Yeah. I mean, steroids work. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I mean, I won't ever say that steroids don't work, but, mm. you know, um, there's, ne there's never been a legal alternative to them. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put it that way. No, it's like Prof. Uh, Ron Morn uh, uh, has been quoted to say that, you know, about, about supplements that, that might um, have these potential sort of anabolic effects, etc., or, or, you know, doping type benefits is uh, if they work they're they're banned and they're probably banned and if they uh, and if they're not banned they probably don't work <laughs> which well is, it, it's, it, it's yeah. yeah it's trite to say but you know uh, the magic bullet theory in just about anything you know the hardcore listeners out there know that there there really are no shortcuts if yeah. you're not in the gym and you're not lifting hard and you're not paying attention to your diet it's hard to build the pyramid to achieve peak performance. And, you know, yeah, obviously you can get on steroids and you can take all kinds of uh, synthetics and, you know, enhance and, and yeah, yeah, it definitely exceed what you could normally do. But the main point is, is that uh, nutritionally and supplement wise, there are a few things that you can do to tweak the system. Mm. But Honestly, I, I, I'm, I've yet to see or be impressed by any scientific data to say that there is something out there that could boost testosterone so much that I would say, you know what, 100%. I, I definitely, I would take this. I would at least try it. Mm. And you can say, well, I'm going to try anything. Well, and that's, that's fine. But um, if it's out there, uh, you, you'd be hearing a lot more about it, believe me. Yeah. Well, you made a comment earlier, actually, which um, got me thinking, which is if, if, if there is a time that you can kind of get this, it, it's like you say, if you, if you find a person or an athlete, uh, particularly males, at that special time in their life where they become a man, um, that's the time to hit the weights because that's probably the time you're going to get the greatest amount of physical changes that are loosely associated associated with all this anabolic stuff um, yeah absolutely yeah. you know uh, well well planned and uh supervised resistance training in uh young men uh and young women probably to some extent i would imagine that that side at that uh, stage um is is going to be the time of the most rapid change in their in their physique there, there's no question about it i mean you only have to be around uh, you know, kids at that age to see them change, at least you, you notice the change vertically. Of course, they're growing. Um, but if you get the right individual and the right time is that they just, they, they lay on muscle and they get stronger very, very quickly. More than, uh, more than us old geezers, uh, Laurent, I'm afraid. Yeah, speak for yourself, Steve. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. actually, I'm older than you, so that's worrying, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So, well, you mentioned f females there. So, um, just 
briefly as we get onto the tail end of this podcast. So, you know, a lot of this is, you know, is often aimed at men about, you know, getting big and jacked, as I said earlier. But, but, but females, you know, there's a, there's a slightly different thing here. And, and of course, there's an anxiety amongst women in particular who really do start to freak out when you start to tell them to lift heavy, increase their protein, etc., because they feel that it's going to, you know, have, um, uh, you know, turn them into monsters physically, you know, big, massive muscles. And, of course, that that is that's just not going to happen, is it, in, for the most part? No, I, I, you know, and again, if you, you look at some of the better data out there, when you... Uh, compare men to women, the, the relative gains that women make in muscle size are about the same as men, uh, but they're starting at a much lower baseline. And so again, that's another argument for the fact that testosterone can't be driving the whole process there's, because women hypertrophy, there's no question. Mm. Um, but I've yet to see, uh, and we admittedly haven't done as many training studies in, in women as we have in men, but in any of the ones that we've done, I've yet to see uh, a woman become muscle bound, if that's the right word. Sure. They all they, they get stronger, uh, they get more muscular, uh, their physique changes, of course. Uh, but it's you know the heavy weights and everything else are are not what's necessary or, or necessarily going to drive that transformation. Most of the um, pictures that women might have seen that would scare them from lifting the heavier weights are, are women who have chosen to, uh, to basically use, uh, you know, exogenous, uh, steroidal help. And in doing so, they adopt a very masculine physique. And, you know, if that's something that, you know, people want to achieve, there's, there's no, there's a no brainer there because you're taking a woman from essentially no testosterone up to something. So, you know, she would need barely anything, to see that transformation, where as a man is starting from a higher level, you have to get them to an even higher level. So, mm. the, you know, they're fundamentally different uh, scenarios. Yeah. Well, in in, uh, in my last, uh, literally the the previous podcast with oh no, sorry, the previous uh, my last podcast was with Emma Stevenson, and we were talking about um, GI as in glycemic index and some of these sorts of things. Um, but um, the previous podcast to that, I was talking with Lee Hamilton, who I believe you know, and yes. um, and um, very much about the molecular stuff. And um, we sort of got into a few a few areas, which I, uh, I'm going to claim having coined the term nutrient priming, uh, <laughs> which I believe may be a, a, a better sort of angle on some of this stuff. You know, this, this business of activation of, gene signaling pathways um you know like time under tension for example with the training and then obviously there are certain foods and and uh, even uh, like in kev tipton's uh, lab um where lee of course is 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 there's some interesting research on on fish oils um and its impact on some of this stuff which also Stu, i i coined the term omegabolics um, as in a megabolic steroids, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't, I don't know how popular that will be. But I've already been uh, emailed a few people who listen to that podcast who want a few, a few boxes or a few cases of megabolics. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but where do you? I mean, where do you think the research is likely to go? Um, given that 
pretty soon we're probably, uh, and we may not because I know the argument still exists and it's quite a healthy one about how relevant testosterone, etc. is, but where do you think we should be looking? Um, I, I think the next sort of threshold with this um, steroid argument and, uh, you know, the anabolic hormone uh, argument and everything is really around uh, what's happening at the local muscular level. I think that there are there are receptor events and, you know, things that we maybe don't understand too well that could be explaining some of the effects of these hormones if they are, if they are having an effect. And so um, we have some work lined up where we're trying to get a little bit deeper into, in, into that aspect of things. Um, and if we're going to see something, I, I, I suspect that that's where it is, which sort of means that the systemic response is you know, uh, probably not as relevant as we once thought. So listen, I, you know, I know you well enough to know that you could go on for hours on all these different topics, but I think now's probably a time to draw this particular topic to a close. Um, I know lots of people can simply just Google Stu Phillips and protein or Stu Phillips and hormone hypothesis etc and they'll, they'll come across a lot of your work but um, I, and I know that you, you're not just doing research at McMaster University but you're also involved in various academic programs there graduate programs and so on if, if people want to learn a bit more about um, what you're up to at your lab and the uh, teaching programs that you have how, you know, where do they go for that? Uh, well I'm an easy person to find I think mm. on the internet so um, I, but I am Phyllis that's P-H-I-L-L-I-S at McMaster.ca um, and the article I was referring to is a, a, a one that was published uh, by myself and Dan West mm. uh, in Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise and that's, a, that's I think that's a really good one if you've never really sort of waded into this area to look at both sides of the coin and so if you wanted to sort of get yourself up to speed it would be uh, a good one to pick up yeah absolutely and uh um i am one of your many twitter followers um <laughs> and um uh, just just remind us what your twitter id is oh uh, i am mac Prof. that's m-a-c-k-i-n-p-r-o-f yeah there you go hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get you a few more followers there Stu. <laughs> <laughs> some of your many disciples there on the on the twitter sphere um, cool. so listen mate thank you very much for your time and coming back once again um as i mentioned off air hopefully uh we me and my crew on the isisn diploma will will come on over to canada maybe at some time and maybe we'll, we'll get you guys over there and see what see what's going on um up there in hamilton etc um but um that brings us to the end of this guru performance podcast i of course am laurel bannock and you can learn more about this and our uh, various educational programs at guruperformance.com <laughs>